You're listening to Consolidate That. Ukraine is my motherland. It is now under a savage attack by Russia. Ukraine is shielding Europe and the rest of the civilized world from Putin's barbaric aggression. Ukrainians are brave and effectively fighting back. Let's help. Make a donation to Armed Forces of Ukraine. Link is in the show notes. Hashtag Stand with Ukraine. Welcome back to Consolidate That. Ivan, I'm very excited for our guest. We've got a guest from outside Galaxy Vets today, bringing us back to our roots. So I'll let you go ahead and introduce him and we'll kick it off. Excellent. Well, I am very excited today and delighted. We have Dr. Alan Robinson and uh, what he created is a big part of Galaxy methodology. Dr. Alan Robinson specializes in managing high-performing organizations, creativity, ideas, innovation, and lean. He is the co-author of 12 books, which have been translated into more than 25 languages. His research has been written about in almost every major newspaper in the United States, including the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, as well as most major business publications, including The Economist, Business Week, and Forbes. Dr. Robinson has advised more than 300 organizations in 25 countries on how to improve their performance. Some of his more well-known recent clients uh, include the Federal Reserve Bank, the Government of Singapore, IKEA, the U.S. Navy, UBS, Volkswagen, the Washington Post, Heineken, and Toyota. Dr. Robinson received his PhD in applied mathematics from the Johns Hopkins University and BA and MA in mathematics from University of Cambridge. Well, <laughs> Dr. Robinson, welcome to the show. Thank you for finding the time. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. The very particular reason why I'm so excited um, about interviewing you is that we implemented a lot of ideas uh, from the your book ideas i free and essentially that became became one of uh, i would call three bibles that we have now uh, at the core of our company and essentially the the book is about how to implement ideas in the organization and to manage it from bottom up and uh, i was looking for something like that for a long time and and the big mistake that i that i made i think uh, we implemented and we intuitive, intuitively thought that this is something that is very much needed. And we actually had the electronic method of collecting ideas from the organization, but we had the entire system. It was mostly like a, selecting a feature that was suggested by the users and then finding that best idea to implement. So we actually percolated the ideas to the very best one. We had a very complicated process of how the idea will be the best one to implement. And along the way, you lose a lot of good ideas and you lose the motivation from people that came up with the ideas. And ideas are free. Your book gave us the inspiration to actually do it completely different. So in maybe... Just two words, how do you describe the concept of ideas are free so it could be better explained to the listeners? With just two words? That is the most challenging question I've been asked, and I've actually spent them already. Um, ideas are free looked at the best in the world at getting ideas from their frontline employees. 170 companies, 15 countries, very broad-based, deep look at the best in the world. And how they did it. That's excellent. So what is so wrong, and I admit it, in our way how we wanted to do it? So we, we intuitively thought that implementing ideas from the organization is very important. And when people drive ideas to improve profitability, efficiency, just to get engaged, 
um, you know, I, I learned a lot about the intrinsic motivation of employees. And when you are given that sort of uh, sense of autonomy to come up with things that are actually implemented, and I love Daniel Pink, so autonomy, mastery, and purpose, mm -hmm. then, uh, then you're giving them that opportunity. But what is the difference between the big ideas that you're kind of trying to find that big impact or what you describe in the book as thousands of small ideas? What is the difference and why it keeps people more motivated? That's a really big question, and I, I need more than two words for that. Um, <laughs> but so if I don't know if you've seen the book, you might enjoy it. it just came out called Gradual. Um, it's a sort of defense of incrementalism. But I guess what's happened this uh, we don't really know where to start because you've asked me a very broad question. The, the answer short in short is that large change, large transformation, big stuff is really lots of little stuff. And so when you go for the big idea directly, you very rarely get, you know, nothing ever. I, I, we, we interviewed Art Fry, who's the inventor of the post-it note, you know, which is the quintessential innovation that all my MBA students want to study. And at, at one point in the interview, we weren't even talking about this. He said, you know, the post-it note was one big idea and 257 small ideas. So I was just talking about this with a group uh, an hour ago that if you the really massive transformations uh, and the really massive change comes from lots and lots and lots of little things. And I think that more and more, maybe just in the last 10 years, we're understanding that if you look at the where, where most improvement potential lies in an organization, forget about innovation for now, it's actually very much the same story, but it lies, it's deeply buried in the processes, the day-to-day -day work, the work practices. And so these sort of so-called small ideas, the, we need to add another word, they're really deceptively small ideas. <laughs> Because ideas that come bottom up are actually large because they apply to processes. And I was just talking about an example where uh, it was an idea that saved five minutes in a department of 50 people 36 times a day. And it was just a frontline idea. It was a simple thing. And uh, if, you, if you do the math on that, it works out to something like 780 hours of labor per year, which is kind of you're getting one half person for without going through it through HR for free. And when I say to, I do this with, when I say to well, pick a small idea, they're all like this. And I can, I can offer you uh, $780 in labor savings with one idea. And they all, how much would you pay for it? And they go, Oh, $60,000, half an employee. That's amazing. You know, but if you go back to Daniel Kahneman thinking fast and slow, it's a matter of perception. If I offer it to you as a big, big single thing, you jump at it and say, wow, but if I offer it to you compounded slowly over time, the human brain doesn't naturally process compounding. So the Made in America study that uh, Ronald Ray, the largest management study ever done, this was one of their three key findings that slow, small, bottom-up incremental ideas created much more innovation, much more uh, improvement than always looking for the next big thing. It's awesome. And it's a, just a, it's a hard fact for people to accept because we all enjoy thinking big thoughts. Hmm. How do you think people should parse out the idea and the vision of saying, well, this is too small to care about versus, you know, I need to make a big impact. I mean, that's kind of, you know, you're talking to uh, Ivan and I, and I think both of us are big, big idea, big dreamers, big, yeah. big functionality things. But, you know, how, how does someone in a veterinary practice even just decide that they're, they're come well, up with a I mean, idea? You have to understand that you, you reach your goals. Um, we, we've just finished this large study. I just finished, and I don't know that you've perhaps not seen this yet, but um, it's the largest study of continuous improvement and innovation in government that's been done in the last three decades. And we found 
high performers who did amazing things. The results, we started from there. We went back and said, how'd you do it? And in one case, it was, uh, the person said, it's 180 small ideas over a two-year period. And it completely transformed this problem department in the city of Denver to star department and worldwide innovator. People come every year to a thousand person conference to study how they did it. And yet every single thing that they pointed to, and it was them, not us, just say, how did you do this? Was, uh, was a small thing. So the secret here is, um, I, I don't know that it's, it's not really in my resume, but uh, years ago, I wrote my first book with a man called Shigeo Shingo. I don't know if you've heard that name, but he was one of the brains, the two people who sort of developed lean. And Kanban. I'm sorry? And Kanban, right? Yeah, all of that. He was sort of the management thinker behind it. And uh, I remember him saying, to, I, I asked him what everybody asked, uh, I guess, of people. You know, what's the one big secret, you know, to uh, the Toyota production system, which is what it was called before me. And he said, it's mass creativity. It's not leaving the, the thinking in the hands of a few people that have big thoughts. It's getting, you know, 200,000 people every day improving things by, you know, half a percent, one percent. That adds up over time. And again, our human mind wants the big, we want, we like the home runs, but we don't like the sort of hard work of the singles and those, te those tend to be, I think the analogy even works in baseball, though I grew up on cricket. Um, the analogy, you know, you don't get there just by home runs. Hmm. And, and why are the frontline ideas so important to drive performance and innovation in the organizations? Because most of the opportunities for improvement are only seen by frontline people. So there's a lot of data in another, you mentioned the book, Ideas Are Free. There was a sequel to that book called Idea-Driven Organization. And one of the things we did there was uh, sort of document this 80-20 principle with lots of examples, which says that 80% of any organization's improvement potential lies on the front lines. And the reason is that's where most of the improvement opportunities actually sit. Uh, you know, you can, you can do big picture things and move things around and put in new systems and open up in China. Uh, but what really, where all your, most of your opportunity is, is in the day-to-day -day small. And there's a lot of data to that. Uh, it's a sort of a settled question that, that uh, so people are just looking in the wrong place for much of what they actually want. Hmm. And then with, with, with the frontline employees, there's always a, a curiosity that I have is how do you empower people and how do you actually motivate them to do that? Because, you know, let's say we, we're in the business of, of partnering with the practices and it's a new culture merger every time. How do you come in into an organization that doesn't have that in the culture and say, hey, we want your ideas? And how do you actually get them to, to buy in and start doing this? Is there a secret to the process? How do you ignite that and start? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of big high-level principles. I've just been telling you guys, go small, go small. Now we go to the big high-level principles. One of them is what makes this difficult. I would say less than 0.1% of companies worldwide. You know, I can think of maybe a, a 1,000 or 2,000 that really do this well around the world. Um, so it's proven and it works, but most organizations don't do it. And the reason is it's primarily, you started talking about the employees this, the employees that. This is primarily a management transformation because your employee, Arthur Kessler wrote probably the most definitive book on creativity ever written, The Act of Creation. And he said there's, you know, if you look at the hierarchy of needs, humans need food, shelter, and water. Then they need, he said reproduction, but he's really mean sex. After that's creativity, the third human need. So you're actually just releasing from the frontline people what they already want to do. Um, people have an incredible urge to be creative. Uh, if you look at the, you were mentioning why, you know, burnout. 
why do people leave companies? Again, this is well, well documented that I don't feel respected. I don't feel like I'm having an impact. I don't feel, forget the number three one was I'm not being given more responsibility to help. Uh, I don't feel listened to and pay is like seventh or eighth. So when we motivate, we talk about motivating, we often think, oh, let's just pay them more and they'll want to do it. They already want to do this. You're just releasing a force that, but the problem that's in the way is management because we have this, I, it, it's not a simple picture, but I can try to sort of simplify it. Uh, the, the, you, know, you know, we have this strong tendency, and I see a Stanford flag behind you, by the way, Stanford Business School has a whole group that studies this about how, you know, top down is a very strongly held paradigm. We have dictators, we have, you know, uh, slavery, feudalism, kings, monarchs, everybody's invading everybody else and wants to take over other people's countries. And, uh, you know, and, and we have this tendency to want to push ourselves on others and order them around. And it's very strongly part of the human condition. Uh, and, and so now we have people in charge who come from that tradition where, and, and just a hundred years ago, Frederick Taylor wrote, there are those who managers think and workers do, and that's how it should be. The very last speech Frederick Taylor gave was quite close to where I live. And he actually said, uh, we do not even want people to question the procedures under which they are told to work by management. So, you know, this was codified and part of our nature that we are top down. So now we say the people on the bottom really want to fix things they because it would help them with burnout. Uh, it would help them. You know, the number one reason why people give in ideas is to make their job easier. Number two is to reduce frustration. Uh, there's all and it's all because they want to, but management's in the way. They just can't let go. And, you know, the you mentioned early on uh, obliquely the sort of suggestion box approach, um, which is most suggestion boxes are now online. Of course, you have a nice portal and there's lots of consulting companies, including some with some very big names that will sell you this portal and you type in your idea and you your employee number and how much it's going to cost and you send it off. And that's an online suggestion box. And uh, my, my teacher Shingo used to say, if you take a bad process and automate it, you just get a lot more waste and mismanagement more quickly. <laughs> you know how old the suggestion box process is? It, it was invented in medieval Venice in the Venetian arsenal. It's actually 750 years old. And I don't know anywhere else where we still use literally medieval processes. It's like I said to you, please send me your idea on a piece of parchment on the back of a donkey because I don't do this email thing. <laughs> I mean, you laugh at it, but yeah, I know it's, it's sort of funny, but we're, we're back in stone ages as far as managing creativity, except we know how to do it. It's just very hard. And, uh, and, and it's not that the employees need motivation. Yes, in the beginning, they've got to really believe that management wants to hear this stuff, but this is a management transformation. So what is that big difference between, so when, when I mention it, and maybe I'm, I'm just a terrible uh, way of pitching it, what I do to, to people when I was so inspired by the book and I was like, okay, this is what we need to do. And immediately several managers in our organization went, okay, we'll put the, the idea boxes everywhere. And it was just the immediate go-to. So where is that difference between what you are describing about the ideas and how they percolate from bottom up? And that idea box that just accumulates garbage and then just thrown out together with all the ideas. Well, yeah, and they even have you know Gary Larson and uh, uh, all, all the cartoonists have you know boxes dropping into hell with the devils <laughs> roaring in laughter and going straight into the shredder. Yeah, so you know there's a lot to know here. It's like it's like you know finance and accounting and you know quality management. They all they all have a, a, a discipline and a body of knowledge. It's just for some for some reason, and this is another aspect 
of a book that I'm not going to write, but needs to be written at some point about why is it that in this one space, which is so critical to us, improvement and innovation, we sort of assume we know what we're going to do. And we don't say, you know, uh, let's go find out cutting edge practice. And so the, the suggestion box is sort of the very primitive, very old. It's never worked well. The, the best suggestion box I've ever seen, I would say, it's like a steam engine. They start to tap out about one idea per person per year um, oh. kind of thing. And I, I don't know what your experience has been, uh, but they're just too cumbersome. They're just not, they're not, it's a poor process. So uh, as they used to say, I used to work in the Soviet Union a lot. And I used to hear this from Soviet managers that, that uh, a bad system will beat a good person every time. So the idea box is a bad system. So I put that in place. I remember Tony Blair announcing, because uh, I'm half British, used to live in Britain, and he said, we're going to have a, and then described a suggestion box for the civil service. And I remember my first thought, I went to Cambridge, as you know, as you said, and we had all the, all those spies that were secretly working for the KGB, all came from Cambridge, just right, right outside my building, actually, uh, was where their college was. And I remember thinking they still got, they still haven't caught a couple of them because they're sitting in the continuous improvement department in the civil service telling them to put a suggestion box in place. That's pretty much going to kill everything. Uh, and they're going to look great. Um, so the modern processes are very different. They're, uh, you know, they're, they're very highly evolved and they, they're mostly team-based processes and they have a lot of problem solving stuff incorporated in them. They're very collaborative and, you know, it's, it's a, it's a long story to describe the, 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 those processes. But when you try, one of the things you try to do when you talked about getting employees involved is, you explain to everybody why the process needs to work this way. And I'm not advocating stuff. I'm report. I'm more of a reporter here. I go and look at the best practice and then kind of interpret what everybody's doing because they all don't always talk to each other. But they all end up operating on the same general principles, and they're completely different than a suggestion box. I don't know if uh, everybody's terribly interested in the processes. How do you, how do you process a hundred ideas per person per year? You know, how does Toyota do? What was it? Five million ideas last year. And you go, wow, that's just, you know, either there, there was actually a Wall Street Journal reporter who said either it's a scam or Toyota is so full of problems that they would never, uh, you know, they, they've got five million things to improve. And Fujio Cho, who was then the uh, CEO when that article came out, he said, no, there's a third thing, which I don't think you understand, which is that change creates the need for further change. The world is always changing. New suppliers, new things going on, you know, new boundaries, new rules, new products. And uh, you have to change with it. And that's more than enough to keep driving increasing numbers of ideas as we move into the future. So really, back to your original question, and you're asking me these very deep questions, and they're, they're really, they're right on the money. Uh, most people just say, tell me how the process works. And I go, that's actually 10% of it. I could show you how the process works, and you would fail if you didn't understand that this was a management, you know, this is a management headset change. And to do that, they generally need a lot of education. You know, I'm saying three, four days of classroom work and practice to really understand why it is that most of their improvement and innovation lies there. And then you don't have to reinvent the wheel. How do we go after it? But if you just show people the how, but not the why, they fail. Mm. It's interesting. I, you know, the, the similar thing to the ideas, um, uh, I, I keep stealing it from the colleague of mine. Her name is Beth Davido. So I, I'll, I'll quote her so she doesn't think that I'm stealing it every time, but she defined it in the veterinary hospitals. What she'd done to make people happy is she let them to sort what she called pebbles in their shoes. 
Essentially, something yeah, right. really annoying on you know throughout the day, which you call it. This is stupid. I don't want to do it. Why we're we printing out this piece of paper? Fix that. And it was you know it's so connected in my mind when I read your book. But what are the most common mistakes that you see managers do when they're trying to implement this this process? Um, uh, they well, they don't understand what a good process looks like. They think that, and they they're still operating in this paradigm that they have to approve every single idea. You know, they say, how is it that, you know, I would just have no time to do it if I had 10,000 ideas sitting on my desk. The point is they don't sit on your desk. They're done without you even knowing about them, you know, because the, the fundamental thing you buy into is, and, 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 and by the way, this is, this, is, this is all sort of old stuff in many ways. Um, Friedrich Hayek, who founded the Austrian School of Economics, his, he wrote the most widely read essay in business, which is the uses of knowledge in society. His Nobel Prize winning speech in 1942 was about this point that there's a lot of knowledge that resides at the frontline level that we make no use of. And the people at the top only see aggregate information, which is good for deciding direction, but it's terrible for individual you know, innovation. So I see people just not understanding the fundamental forces involved as, as one, one thing, not bothering to learn about uh, you know, cutting edge practices, they just sort of have a dose of humility and say, and, and also this remarkably prevalent, the, the, the suggestion box fits so well with the prevalent management paradigm where you put the thing, it's a suggestion for one thing, it's a suggestion. Uh, so anytime you, you hear words like, you know, evaluate and reject and accept, and those are suggestion box terms. Um, we say if the front line, if the knowledge exists on the front lines and they know they see a lot of things we don't see, they also come up with solutions we couldn't think of uh, because they know it better, <laughs> then we have to do something to enable them to, to do that. And we probably shouldn't be involved with most of it. So in the case of this um, organization, uh, the Denver licensing that I was just talking about, 180 ideas, only two of them involved the frontline supervisor. The rest were just done by their frontline. So we call this frontline driven improvement. And that's a mindset change. And it's a you know, you don't just jump into it. That's another thing people say, oh, well, now you're all empowered. You know, you have to set some conditions and you know, set some systems up. You can't just migrate to this new world. So there's there's a few months of kind of saying, here are the new rules that we're going to operate under. And then there's some hiccups along the way. And you just have to have faith that most of what you're actually wanting to meet your strategic goals. I mean, you guys just said you have big ideas for what you want to do. The answer to, to getting to those places is, to activate, uh, you know, John Cotter made this point. You have, if you have an organization with 3,000 people, you can't have 100 managers driving all the change. You need 3,000 people driving the change. It's a lot more powerful. And so I think that the, it's the mass creativity message and realizing that that's the key and that your job is to figure out how to do that. And you can. I loved your example in, uh, in your second book. I think it was in Stockholm in the Coca-Cola factory where they spent like thousands and thousands of dollars trying to improve the how the bottles were all coming out affected, right. and then they spend the consultants and engineers. And then finally it was the guy who was working on the line that actually just improved, you know, the spacing between the bottles. And that was, that was fixed. The key. Oh, yes. Those are wonderful stories. And they put a smile on people's faces and it's so funny. I talked to a lot of frontline people and as you can imagine, and you know, there's just all these wonderful stories. Like I think it was the Boston museum of science that, wanted to understand which of its exhibits were the most widely watched. And so they hired a consulting company, they put cameras and motion sensors. And then somebody thought 
uh, why don't we just ask the janitor where he has to mop the floor the most? <laughs> the guys that here, here and there. You know, it's like that's awesome. Um, and there's a wonderful guy in New York City. He's retired now, but he was called the Suggestion Man. New York had a suggestion box system, and he tried to make it work. He was a janitor, and he said, "You know, this city spends hundreds of millions of dollars on consultants every year, and not one dime on listening to the people who actually know what's wrong and how to fix it." <laughs> And, I put, and he's this janitor just going, what the heck are you guys doing up there? Right. <laughs> I have a very tactical question. And so when we tried this, one of the things that we, so we, we had a really big brainstorm session. So we all read the book and then we sat down, we, we incorporated design thinking process and all the innovation that we do in the company. And then as the biggest challenge that we were trying to solve along the process of submitting ideas was it's not difficult to motivate people and just start saying, okay, come up with your ideas and implement them. But as soon as you ask them to record it and drop it into somewhere, this is where you're, especially with people that work on the floor. So in the vet clinic, you're not at the computer, you're holding animals, you're doing procedures, you're, you know, so, so as management, we want to know the number of ideas and then, you know, have the, the, the sort of the metrics behind you know, read it and acknowledge in 24 hours, implement or discard in 72. But we don't want to be on the way of ideas being implemented. And that recording part is actually becoming mm. sort of an impediment there. So is there a better okay. practice of allowing sure. ideas to flow, but at the same time, register the number of those that were implemented? Well, I wasn't there, so I can just take a crack off of what you told me. But I think your mistake was right at the beginning where you said people have ideas and they just implement them. Um, that's a sort of a, that's a notorious cause of a lot of the problems that you just named because, and it used to be people said, oh, we didn't, we don't need one of these idea systems. We just, you know, I just talk to my boss and my boss says, do it. I do it. And what happens is everything backtracks, uh, because the rest of the team wasn't involved. And in fact, it, you know, it, it, it regressed some areas that because the stakeholders weren't there and talking about it. So the modern processes, uh, there was an INSEAD study on this, um, uh, recently that said that the um, modern processes are all team-based. So once a week, usually, you get together for 45 minutes and you start with your problems, as it says in idea-driven organization, not ideas. Uh, because the sort of another fundamental truth is the person who sees the problem is usually not the person who has the answer to the problem. So when you ask people to deal in the currency of ideas, you're asking for that twofer and your chances are you're going to get a, a less than optimal idea for the solution because you haven't got the team on it. So I have sat through these wonderful meetings and you know people will say, you know, I think we should do this. And that's an idea. That's a proposed action. So you say immediately, well, what's the underlying problem? Oh, the underlying problem is that, you know, the customers get pissed off twice a day and for this reason. And you say, well, is there another way? And then everybody starts chipping in. You build a much stronger solution. Everybody hears it. And by the way, uh, since to implement it, you have to kind of use some kind of board process or something in the, you know, if you're, if you're remote, you just have a remote, the Navy does it this way. They just have a screen and there's a corpsman who, you know, fills it out as everybody does. And you look at the idea, yeah, I'm going to do this. My job is to do this by next week. And it's all naturally recorded as part of building the ideas. So in practice, that's not a problem. It, it is if you've got this process where, I can just go to one person can go to another and say, I'm doing this because mm. you, you put in place to be really direct. Bad ideas are put in place without the knowledge of most people that if I say it that way. You can see why you're going to get into trouble down the road. 
No, that makes sense. And that's why we, that's why what you describe, I think it's very similar to the design thinking process that we incorporated into every innovation or initiative that we kick off. The f fundamental part of it is at the beginning before saying, I'm going to do this to solve this is bringing the stakeholders and preferably people that are not involved in this area of expertise to have mm -hmm. an independent and diverse opinion on the problem rather than on solution. So the first step in the design thinking process, is defining the problem really well. And then once you define it, then switch to a solution oriented. So that's that's so you already have the answer to your question. Um, the uh, all that the modern idea systems do is they do that and they don't do it on a one-off basis when we're going to, you know, we're going to merge our company with a Chinese company. And that's, so we have to have this brainstorming session. They do it with every single problem and they do five or six problems a, a week that way. Mm. And we basically get everybody to vote. You know, voting is a big part of design thinking as well. Put all your problems up there. Be very clear on what the problem is. Cause then people can, if I, so the other thing is, uh, when you propose an idea, you have ownership in it. And if it's a bad, an, an idea is a problem plus a solution. And if I say we should paint this pink and you say, no, we shouldn't. Now you've, I, I've, I'm hurt. You've got, I'm on the defensive. Whereas if I say the problem is, I think the wall is, you know, interfering with the, uh, the, the, the way the screen looks. Uh, then now you can say, oh, what should we do? Should we paint it? Should we cover it? Should we move the screen? You know, you've got way more options. So you have this, the underlying sort of uh, essential engine of design thinking is the diverge-converge mm -hmm. cycle, and again, that's that that was invented in 800 BC. I mean, that's that's an old one. That's pre-Greek. You know, Socrates was that was old for him. You know, but so it's, these humans have been studying creativity for a long time, uh, and that that is the essential engine we've been with all along. It's just that we've only for design thinking we have, and I'm a huge fan of you know IDEO and. I've been helped to IDEO talking to them because they're very interested in this stuff too. You know, they do the one-off projects that kind of, and, and if you do that well, that same cycle of working, then you'll get a good project. But I'm saying do it on a daily basis with everybody all the time. That's what these rapid improvers and innovators do. It's just a matter of, is it part of the job or is it an extraordinary thing that you get together once a quarter and brainstorm over? So the, the, the modern ways to make it part of the job. So to me, so additional question to that, then when you are designing the team that should dis discuss the problem, what is, because mm -hmm. naturally people go to, and this is what I was kind of not struggling. I'm trying to describe to my team and I'm saying, okay, we're solving the problem in the, in the finance department. Let's bring in the M&A and the R&D and the support folks because they don't have an opinion on it as they walk in. They hear it for the first time. And if the problem is well mm -hmm. described, they may give you a solution that you couldn't think about. If you're bringing everybody who has the knowledge in it, you'll get the result yeah. the same as you usually do. So what's... So there, there is... Yeah. So there's a trick to designing these teams. And funnily enough, and I smile when I say this, I, I just worked with a... Yeah, I better be careful here, but right after the big condo collapsed in Florida, I was called by one of the biggest developers in Florida to sort all that out. And it was very interesting. You know, what should our teams look like? You know, building a development is so, and a condo is so complicated. And I, I sort of said, well, you know, let, let's figure out. And, and eventually they ended up with the existing organizational structure is just fine. Because if it's not, then you should have change your organizational structure. So normally to answer your question, this is done in however you've got your, your group organized. I mean, it's, it's not just the one-offs where you should pay attention to this. You should have, for improvement, you should make sure the right people get together on a weekly basis 
They think about problems. And if they're always needing to check with someone, we'll bring so-and-so into the group. Mm. Um, so it, you actually end up, if provided your organizational structure makes sense, and you know, you're a small organization, sometimes you get, as you know, you get very, very big and the organizational structure makes no sense at all, in which case the idea teams would look different. But then I would say, why is your organizational structure like that? <laughs> because by definition, you're trying to get people who work together working on processes as in the same sort of team, right? Because if you have, so usually it ends up in a healthy organization uh, as being the same as the, as the as the work teams. You know, if you have a finance group and, but they're constantly dealing with these outside groups, then maybe somebody, from, and then they work as a team for years as the same team. And you can put together ad hoc teams for big cross-functional issues and do the kind of one-off design thinking projects you're doing or Kaizen events or whatever you would call them. Mm -hmm. But generally, the day-to-day -day improvement is who do we work with on, on our processes and let's get together and think about those. It's incredible. We've run through the time that we usually allocate for this, but I could talk to you for hours. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, what a pleasure. <laughs> Thank well, you. Yeah, this has been spectacular. I think... Um, this question might be a layup for you, but you actually have too many books to be able just to recommend a couple of them. So we always ask guests what book they would recommend that our that our listeners uh, read. Your books have been mentioned many, many times on the show, but I'd love to hear which of your books you think people should pick up to be able to dive deeper into what we discussed today. Into what you discussed today. Um, I would do what you did uh, right now. We, the newest one is called Practical Innovation in Government. And... That's creating a lot of waves. Uh, not as I'm not doing this as a commercial, but because what we found was that the best performance in my 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 most common keynote talk today, and and is what the private sector can learn from the best practice in the public sector, because the best practice in the public sector is ahead of the best practice in the private sector. Isn't that interesting? That is interesting. That's so, the and, opposite uh, of what you think, right? Exactly. Uh, in fact, I am an, I'm a victim of abuse. For the last six years, I got abused by all, including somebody you all know, famous in the world of Lean, who said, I, what are you studying? And I said, I'm studying continuous improvement, innovation, operational excellence in government. And he said, oh, that's going to be a short book. Everybody's <laughs> 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 going, ha, 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 you're studying this in government. But it turned out that they were doing you know, much, much more advanced things in the, in the leaders. The average performance is still lower than the average in the private sector, but the leaders are way ahead. And it's, it's just, you know, you can think of the Navy SEALs, although they weren't part of our study. You know, there's, there's parts of government that are really good at improving and innovating and yeah. wouldn't mess with, so to speak. So um, so I, I like the practical innovation government. That's my latest thinking, but it's set in government. However, it also applies to the private sector. Uh, so I'm, a lot of people are reading it and saying, I wish I'd read this book 20 years ago. Um, but uh, if you're just interested in these idea processes and doing something, you know, in your company, Maybe the book Idea Driven Organization is the most direct one for you, but it has earlier thinking still, you know, it's still ahead of 99.9% .9 of companies. And again, I say this as a reporter, not as a, you know, it's still uh, the bar is way high in that book, but the very latest thinking is in this practical innovation in government, but people will say, oh, it's about government. So, oh, well, no, that sounds good. I think we, there's a ton that can be learned uh, from each individual sector and, um, different industries and different verticals. So that's spectacular. This, like Ivan said, we uh, we could definitely listen to you and chat with you for, for quite yeah. a bit more time, but we really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us on the show. It's it's a real honor to have you, and uh, we, we look forward to hopefully having you back and, and chatting with you further. Sure. I've enjoyed talking to you guys as well. Thank Thanks you, for having me. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to Consolidate That. 
If you want to hear our new episodes, please find us on any podcast platform. Also, you can learn more about us on our website at galaxyvets.com.